You're listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. I'm Adam Rissman, Content Marketing Manager at Intercom. This week, we continue to bring you conversations from the Inside Intercom World Tour, our event series all about what it takes to make great product. What you'll hear in this episode comes from the stage of the Sky Church inside Seattle's EMP Museum, where I hosted a panel discussion with founders from three of our favorite area startups. Each shares insight into issues startups face on a day-to-day basis, including finding and focusing on an underserved market, giving customers a voice while fighting feature bloat, attracting promising hires in a competitive market, and much more. Panelists include Asim Badshah, founder and CEO at Sacido, a B2B demand generation system to uncover, engage, and qualify prospects through social media. You ask for commitments up front, right? A six-month commitment, a 12-month commitment, and then you start to really find out who's that segment, who's that target audience that you're really providing value for that has a pain point at the end of the day, and then you just focus there. Amanda Osborne, co-founder and CMO at Meshfire, an AI-based social media management platform. Building a community, a lot of people don't do it at the start when they should. And Andrew Kenzer, co-founder and CPO at Outreach, an enterprise communication platform for sales teams. I think ultimately how you make really good product decisions is like build for the customer, listen to the customer, don't pay attention to your competition's bumper. If you like what you hear, check out previously released panels from a few of our other world tour stops including London, New York, Toronto, and more. Let's get into it. All right. All right. Let's start with something foundational. Uh, The markets that our products serve and the jobs that they're hired to do. Um, entrepreneurs typically aim to solve problems that they're very familiar with. And Andrew, I know you've said that for a technologist, it can be particularly challenging because it's hard to look outside of technology problems specifically. How are you able to discover an underserved market for outreach? Um, so the way we came into outreach was that we had a hypothesis about the recruiting market, and we went out to solve that. And in the process of actually trying to run a real business, uh, we had to run recruiting operations. And the biggest problem we had was not the actual platform that we put together to help match people. It was a lot like Hired. Like, if you guys know what Hired.com is. Like, that's not a technology problem. That's straight-up operations. Yeah. Like, it looks like technology, but it's like 5% technology and 90, 95% just straight hustle. And so in the process of building that business, like, I was, I was essentially a recruiter for six months. I hated it. Like, I'm not an <laughs> operations person. Um, and I realized that, like, the biggest problem was trying to coordinate your communication with the people you're trying to connect with. And there was literally nothing out there. So we ended up building technology for ourselves to help solve our own problem. And after a while, we we're like, wait a minute, like, this is so much bigger. And so I think like, the thing that we learned there was like, go turn over some rocks and find some areas that are just completely neglected and some areas that just like, really suck. Um, so that, that was how we ended up where we are. Amber and Asim, I know in the early days of both Meshfire and Sacido, you had mentioned to me that you tried to sort of build a product for everyone, take a one-size-fits-all approach, which I think doesn't, doesn't typically work out. So that, that was a bad idea. <laughs> so how are you able to find a more fond audience where people were really struggling and could benefit from your product? Um, so for us, we, we have a social media product, and we were like, yeah, let's go find everybody who has a Twitter account and try to market towards them. Not on the budget that we had when we started out. Um, so about a year in after our product came out, 
someone, we were at an event and someone's like, hey, I'm a community manager. I work for a video game company. Like I've been using you guys for the last couple of months. Like you guys should maybe really go into the video game industry because we need your help. Like we're very small teams of maybe one to three people. We really need your help. So we focused on the video game industry. We totally did the friends thing with the couch and pivoted. And um, yeah, ever since then, like it's, it's just been going off like gangbusters for us. Yeah, I mean, for us, it was, it was very similar, right? We started out and said, hey, we're going to build a huge freemium platform. We're going to be like Hootsuite and Buffer and have 5 million users and 5% of them are going to pay and we're just going to start there. Yeah. Um, and that just didn't work. And so for us, I think the key moment was asking people to pay uh, and really kind of just asking up front, you want this feature? If we do that for you, are you willing to sign a contract? What are you willing to pay? Uh, and that very quickly starts to filter out who's serious, who's not, and you can then start to capture the market, right? And really understand who those target segments are. Um, and you take that one step further and you ask for commitments up front, right? A six month commitment, a 12 month commitment, and then you start to really find out who's that segment, who's that target audience that you're really providing value for that has a pain point at the end of the day, and then you just focus there. Yeah, that's a good one, too, because a lot of people end up saying, like, I wish I had this or that. But when it gets down to money, people right. are very specific yeah, exactly. about, like, no, 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 no. Okay, forget about that. Just, like, I'll pay you if you just build this. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, so when it comes to the, the money going through, I mean, people, everyone that gets into this, they love building product. But I think that one of the differentiators is not everyone loves serving the customer, and that's where you can really excel. Andrew, your product's a workflow tool, workflow tool that people essentially live in. So... How does that shape your approach to product building? I mean, you really have to be there with them. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people out there that like build products from the sidelines, mm -hmm. right? Like they, they kind of know what it's like to use it, but they don't, they don't really, and they don't really ever like really get in there and get their hands dirty and like immerse themselves and understand who their customer is. And like, like we build a workflow product, right? Like people spend more time in our software than they do like sleeping in their beds. Like it's a lot of time. Oh yeah. And like they will complain up and down on like any single wrinkle. And like there's a lot of people out there, especially in the product industry where like they'll be like, yeah, okay, whatever, I'll get to it when I get to it. But like, no, like, like you better absorb that pain for the customer because like otherwise they're gonna walk. They're not gonna have a great memory about you. And so for us, it's like if the customer's bleeding because of either you're not right where you need to be as a product or you made a mistake and the product needs to get fixed, like you're gonna bleed with them until it's done. And that's the only way that you can like really build great product, I believe, is if you empathize to that level where you're like killing yourself for the customer. And I think if you look at like the way we build product, I'd say like a quarter of any given sprint is stuff that's just like built that comes up mid sprint. Cause like someone's hitting this issue. They're not going to wait a sprint or two sprints. Like it's their problem now. So like, do we fix it? Hell yeah, we do. We're going to change whatever we got to change and get it in there. Uh, a big part of serving the customer is incorporating their feedback where appropriate and getting feedback early and often. Asim, you did something, um, you invested early on customer support and using that as a tool to funnel on your product roadmap. That's something we do at, at Intercom as well. Um, how do you know when to give weight to those ideas so that you're able to incorporate that voice but you, know, you don't come down with feature bloat? Yeah, no, definitely. And, and for us, it was slightly different, right? We really invested in customer success, which was more proactive, more of an account management role, really there to work with the customer from the beginning, talk to them, set up weekly, bi-weekly calls, really understand their pain points. Why isn't something working? How can they help get something set up? And obviously, lots of ideas kind of come through that channel at the end of the day. And so for us, you've got to protect about feature bloat. And it goes back to what I was saying before, ask them to pay. Right? So many people have cool ideas about 
hey, wouldn't it be neat if you guys added this Twitter function here or you guys you know, showed this information here? And I think a lot of times that can get a sideline, but when you kind of go back to them and say, well, what's the, what's the real value about that? You know, if we prioritize this, how, how would you feel about this contract or this type of commitment? Very quickly, you can start to prioritize these ideas. And, and when your customer success or customer support team kind of takes that mentality, uh, that's really where you start to get a stack ranking of what's important and what's not important. Amber, you've made a big bet at Meshfire on uh, building a community of yeah. advocates. How do you go about doing that, and how do you incorporate their voice in your product? Um, our customers are super, super important to us. We actually call them fire starters, and um, they are our, our lifeblood. Um, basically, we could not do it without our customers' feedback, um, our customers waking us up at 3 o'clock in the morning with phone calls because some of us have given us their, their personal numbers, unfortunately. Bad idea. Um, but the thing is, building a community, I think, a lot of people don't do it at the start when they should. Um, you know, they spend so much time product developing and, and doing all of the little technical details that they forget to find your customers and start building that community even when your product's not out. So that's, that's what we did. And we actually, we use um, a private Facebook group that we've invited all of our customers to. And it's a great place to get feedback and they feel comfortable talking to each other about um, different maybe problems that they have or different solutions that they found. Like, hey, I found this really cool use for Meshfire. And then everyone's like, oh, that's really awesome. And then I get like tons of screenshots and stuff. And I'm like, thanks guys. Um, but yeah, community is so important and also providing back to your community. Um, if we have a free ticket to either a video game conference or a tech conference, we're like, who wants to go? We don't make it a contest. We're just like, who wants to go? And um, just providing them with experiences too, maybe that they're not able to get usually. I'm kind of curious, how did you, how was the building out of that community like impactful on how your the word of your product spread outside of that community? Um, very much so, especially because we work with a very um, tight group in the video game community. So they're such a small family with community managers and everything. So, you know, they've got their own private groups and like, hey, have you used Meshfire? Yeah, I'm, I'm on another private group and like, I love them. They're responsive to us. We always get back to their, their questions and their support in the private group. So it's just, it creates a little family. Got it. Were they able to invite in people outside in? Uh, once in a while. <laughs> We're very no. selective though, because we definitely want to keep it safe. You know, a safe spot for our customers to go. Andrew, on the, uh, the flip side of customer focus, um, one of the potholes that I know you've seen for early stage startups is focusing too much on the competition rather than the customer. What's really at risk there? Yeah, um, so I've got this analogy that like when you're paying too much attention to your competition or even looking at them very much, like it's like everybody's been on this freeway or, the, or a street and they're like following behind that person that drives like crap and they're driving like five miles underneath the speed limit and you're just like looking at their bumper, right? And like normally you'd be looking at the road like 50 yards, 100 yards down the street and you're, you're mapping out all the turns and you're, you're optimizing for those. But when you're behind that jackass, like you're just looking at their bumper and they start drifting out and you start drifting out. And that's what I found is like, I don't think our competition's world-class at almost anything. There's a couple things they do well, but like I don't, I think you should look to your customers. Like if a customer comes to me and says like, 
hey, I really like what they're doing and they solve a problem and you're not, then that's one thing. But that came from the customer. They're just using it as a reference point. They could also come to me and tell me some other product that's not even com competitive with us does this thing and they wish we did it, right? And that's, I think, ultimately how you make really good product decisions is like build for the customer, listen to the customer, don't pay attention to your competition's bumper. <laughs> and I'll, I'll just add on that. I, mean, I think as entrepreneurs, so often we kind of get into this mode of just thinking that competition is a bad thing. Right? And, and you go to these conferences and you talk to people and you tell somebody about your idea and they're like, oh, doesn't that other company do that thing? For us, like, we wish we had more competition at the end of the day yeah. because that's what builds markets. Yeah. We have deals that come in and they are familiar with a the competitor, they've used a competitor. We win that deal more often and we win it faster because that competition is helping to educate the market. There's already a line item on the budget when there is competition out there. Yeah. Our biggest challenge today, there's no competition. There's no market, right? When it comes, we've got to yeah. go and fight and create budget because there's not a lot of competition. So when we see competition out there, we love it, right? We want to build the category together and then we can build a bigger market and really win together. I think that's one thing that entrepreneurs get wrong right off the bat is, oh, there's somebody else doing this. Well, they're not doing it well. Go for that, it. And that's the thing is like a lot of times you can actually partner up with your competition. Um, I've went out to a, a lot of networking events and stuff and I'll meet somebody from a company and they're like, hey, you do that thing, we do this thing. Hey, we should like talk and so co-marketing, like co-marketing with some of your biggest competitors, sometimes eh, it kind of works out. I mean, they've got the budgets, they've got, you know, whatever, just go talk yeah. to your competitors sometimes. Don't yeah. tell them everything. But yeah, it, it is nice that having other competition around like forces you to answer really important questions yeah. and force you to focus on being world class because now you've got competition, right? And so you've got to be better and that ultimately produces a better product. And I, I, I do agree that like if we didn't have competitors we have, like we would not be forced to hustle right. quite as hard. You're listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. Every visitor to your site is a sales opportunity. Connect with them personally and convert them before they leave. Learn how at intercom.com slash acquire. Speaking of finding focus, focus and prioritization are such a big challenge for young companies where things are moving so, so fast. Asim, I know you're a believer in keeping everyone on track through this approach of the one metric that matters. And for you, that's revenue, but it might be data consumed at another company or signups. Um, for something like sales and marketing, it seems pretty easy to tie to that mission, but how do you communicate with engineers and designers to show them how they're contributing to that? Yeah, I mean, I think, for, so first off, right, for us, that one metric that matters is revenue. For, you know, a B2C company, it can be active users, it can be emails, data consumed. But I think that's really important, right, because it sets everybody in the right direction. And essentially, the tone that we've set is we're asking everybody to connect the dots. And so if you're an engineer, you're a designer, right, at the end of the day, you want to think about what am I implementing that's going to impact revenue at the end of the day? How is this going to impact revenue? Is it going to increase retention? What's the adoption strategy going to look like? How long is it going to take until we start to see that impact? Um, and so that's the tone that we set, right? Is that everybody should be thinking about this one metric that matters. And the nice thing is that it starts to really kind of create this 
cross-collaboration, right? Because the designers and the engineers have to get up and go talk to the sales team and ask them, you know, hey, how would you talk about this thing? Or how would we roll this out to our customer success team? How would we talk about this, you know, you know to the marketing team? How would you position this? And so everybody has this kind of intellectual curiosity about what's going on across the organization and how can we help each other to kind of really focus on that one metric that matters, which in our case is revenue. Speaking of teams working together, um, Amber, when should marketing come into play? There's, there's a recent trend of people who are like, let's focus, focus, focus on product, get that right, yeah. and then bring marketing to the table. Should marketing and product be working together from, from day one? Oh, definitely. Definitely. Um, when I first started at Meshfire, I remember they recruited me from Florida, and I come from the music industry and, and marketing and tech, and they're just like, hey, so um, both of the co-founders are hardcore coders and developers, and they're like, we want to help build a product, but we need your brain to build the product because it's a social media product. And I'm just like, oh, God, so I have to work with developers? Oh, God, how are we, how are we going to communicate? Because uh, coming from a marketing field, it's just completely two different worlds. So the first week that I'm sitting in this office, this little office that we had at the time, um, I'm working with these two guys, and I mean, they're old school, and they're, they're probably going to be like, you called us old. But um, they're old school, and they're just kind of like, yeah, so we want you to do user cases and case studies and blah, and like, we want you to do, and I'm like, post-it notes, guys, post-it notes. Let's just post it notes. Like I had nightmares about post it notes. But the thing is, after working with them for three weeks, like just side by side, we learned a lot about each other. You know, a lot about like where I come from on the marketing stance and where I where they come from on the dev stance. I mean, honestly, sometimes it was kind of like gorillas in the mist. I was kind of like, just just make a sign, you know, draw a picture, and they were doing the same thing to me. Um, but I got to tell you, I learned so much from them, just how that whole process and building a product and especially a lot of the technical, because we have a machine learning product, so it's not easy stuff. And it, they learned so much from me about marketing and people and community and working with the customers and how to talk to customers. However, I will not let them on Twitter sometimes. <laughs> I'll be like, you are not talking to customers. And the, the one thing I'll just add there is I think in the early days, a lot of people can kind of get distracted by kind of thinking about marketing as like traditional marketing, like broad market research, go to market, putting out campaigns right off the bat. And I think in the very early days, it's just customer development, right? It's, hey, let's figure out who our target audience is, go talk to 20 of them. In some ways, it looks more like sales than marketing because yeah. you're just sitting down with customers and really trying to understand their pain points and then you know, trying to put solutions in front of them that, that solve those things. So don't, don't go straight to like, campaigns and large market research. I think that you're going to spend way too yeah. much money way too quick. Yeah. And I think like for us, like our marketing came out of helping our customers be successful. It's like, okay, so we build a product, but they actually have to understand the philosophies behind it to like implement process. So you end up like producing a lot of materials and then it turns out like that's the best marketing. Cause like people just want their problem solved yeah. and like you happen to build a tool that helps do that, but they also need the philosophy behind it. So you can actually get two birds with one stone if you do that. So we're getting short on time here. I'm going to need Quick answer to the next couple of things, but I want to make sure we get a chance to talk about hiring because it's been such an interesting discussion. Each city, they all come with their own challenges. So uh, we'll, we'll start with you, Andrew. In Seattle, I mean, how do you go about setting yourself apart and attracting talent in a city where you have so many big tech companies starting to play? Yeah, well, I mean, it's easy for us when we compete against an Amazon and Microsoft because they don't give very much ownership. Like Amazon will certainly work your butt off, but they don't give you much ownership. You're going to be polishing a little gear. Um, so for us, 
we say, hey, look, um, this is a huge product, and it requires a lot of technical background and a lot of UX. Like, if you come in, like, you're going to get a ton of ownership because we have no choice, right? Um, you're going to own a lot of stuff, and it's going to be really, really hard. And you're going to work your ass off, but if that's the kind of place you want to be, come here. And that's a unique environment that like doesn't really exist anywhere. So. It's a good opportunity. Yeah, we, we mostly just go outside of our industry, so we don't go to like tech events and, and try to find like the best tech talent. However, there is a lot out there, especially at the networking and tech events. But where we find the most uh, value for us is, you know, if we're looking for a UI UX person who maybe can help us out, we go to like the video game industry events. Like IDGA is like an awesome one. There's so much art and design talent out there that you know they want to get in the video game industry. But it's like, hey, you ever think about working for a startup for a little bit? Just go outside of your industry. There's a lot of talent here in Seattle that are in different industries. I, mean, I couldn't agree more. I think that you know, I have to thank the big companies in many ways because they're bringing all the people here, right? <laughs> that have the tech talent. You know, you think about Seattle. We've got more apartments, more condos coming online in this city than in San Francisco. And guess who's filling it? It's tech talent, right? And they're all coming to Amazon and Microsoft. And it's easy to compete with those guys because you can compete on ownership at the end of the day. And the beautiful thing about Seattle is that unlike the Bay Area, there's not this culture of move every six months. And there's not this fierce competition for talent at the startup level. So you can get fantastic people and really build a great team early on. I think where I have a question mark is what happens when we're 500 people, right? At the end of the day, there's three generations of SaaS down in the Bay Area. You know, what happens when I need to you know, hire five demand gen marketers that have experience with Marketo or customer success managers that have been in SaaS before in two weeks? I think we'll see more question marks then. But starting early in Seattle, I think this is one of the best places to do it. So the, the common theme of this these events that we've done is unpacking what it takes to make great products. So last thing, in a few words, uh, Andrew, we'll start with you. What separates a great product from just a good one? I always go down to the details. Like you can tell something that somebody's just like slaved over when you look at the details and you see these nuances. We're like, oh, I, I wouldn't have considered that like a core use case, but I get like the reasoning behind it. Um, our philosophy is always like bleed for the customer. And like that always comes down to like just keep iterating, keep iterating, keep iterating. And I see that a lot in like products where like you can tell they've really considered the details. I would, I would have to say uh, customer service and customer experience. I mean, you look at Apple, you look at Abercrombie & Fitch, you know, you go into a store, you handle the products. It's that, that kind of experience that really makes a great product. Seymour, I'll give you the last word here. Yeah, I mean, two ways to look at it, right? One is passion and the other is data. So on the passion side, when you talk to your customers and you see them in person, you're going to see it coming off of their face, the energy, the excitement. Just they're so happy to have what you've built. That's the passion piece. And then the metrics, you look at that one core metric, if it's growing every single week, every single month, you've got something that's working and then you're in the great category. The one caveat I'll say is if you have a good product, like that's good. You know, like I think a lot of people look at all the big storylines out there and they're like, oh no, it's only good, it's not great. Let's stop and try something else. Like you've got a good product. Go find the segment where you see that passion, where you see that data, where you see that growth, and go make it great. Because I think that's what gets entrepreneurs most of the time, is they just stop because it's only good. They're not seeing that growth curve yet. And all of these companies, Intercom included, I'm sure there was some background story where there was lots of work, and you guys were you know, figuring things out early bit. on, right? So, so don't, don't stop it at just that good if you kind of feel like you're not getting it just yet. Good is good. Keep it there, and then find great. All right, give it up for our panel, everybody. Thank you guys so much. Frida. Cool. 
You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.